You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to Episode 7 of the Crisis in the Church series. We're speaking with Father Jonathan Loop about Americanism, which is closely tied to our last set of episodes on liberalism. We'll start by looking at the history and the challenges that faced the Catholic Church in the early years of our country. Also, we'll ask why Americanism is actually an error, and whether or not an American can be both a patriot and a good Catholic. Father Loop is the principal of Immaculate Conception Academy in Post Falls, Idaho, and has a unique perspective, having studied American history and having been a convert from Anglicanism. One note about the audio. As we said, Father is the principal of a school, so you will be hearing children in the background, which is a good thing. If you'd like to learn more about this series we're doing on the crisis in the church, or go back and revisit our previous six episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com. Now, here's Father Luke. Welcome back to the SSPX Podcast, and we are joined for the first time in this series, and I believe on the first time on this podcast as well, by Father Jonathan Loop, who's the principal of Immaculate Conception Academy up in Post Falls, Idaho. Welcome, Father. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And uh, for those people who may not know who you are, who may not live in Post Falls or been in a place where you've been stationed, uh, could you start out with a little introduction about you? And I always ask all the priests this, who is Father Loop? Thank you. No, I'd be glad to. Um, so just very briefly, I am a convert. I grew up a Protestant, in fact, an Episcopalian or an Anglican, for those who may not be familiar with that term. Converted while I was at college uh, at the University of Dallas and uh, about halfway through my time there before then going on to St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary. Um, Did my studies there. I was ordained in 2011, so right around the time of Father Wouter and Father McFarland. And then I was stationed for the first five years of my priesthood in Benita, Oregon, and took care of a mission chapel in Portland before the city went utterly insane. (laughs) And then since 2016, the fall of 2016, I've been the principal of Immaculate Conception Academy. All right. Very good. So you've been in a a few different places, and, and we're happy to have you with us here virtually. Everything's happening virtually in 2020, it seems. <laughs> well, we, uh, we wanted to have you on to speak about liberalism and more specifically that kind of flavor of liberalism that's called Americanism. Um, I know for myself, when I first heard about Americanism, I was a little bit taken aback um, as a proud American who has his flag in front of his house and the whole nine yards. Um, and I guess we should start there, Father. Americanism, is that, uh, is that saying that we shouldn't be patriotic, or is it saying that there are some dangers in being a patriotic American? Where do we land on that, Father? No, that's a very excellent question, and it certainly can lend itself to the misunderstanding, uh, since it's very closely tied with the name of our nation. And the simple answer to that is that um, by Americanism, the Church, and specifically Leo XIII, who was one who addressed it most specifically, did not mean to imply that patriotism towards our nation was somehow evil, but rather to, to warn against certain errors or tendency that tended to be uh, more uh, fruitful here. There's a great deal of natural virtue in aspects of the American regime that we can be justly proud of and be justly, um, let's say, loyal to. And here's, as we'll see as we work through Americanism, um, there's other um, parts of that that we have to be wary of. Okay. 
So that's jumping ahead a little bit, but I just wanted to ask that from the from the get go uh, that this is not going to be an hour or however long we're going to be chatting uh, of uh, bashing the United States of America. That's not that's not the point of this. Um, so I guess we can start with with the beginning, which is a good place to start, um, and that is the the founding of of America, and and this this theory of Americanism starts there, right? Correct. Yeah, and I think that's a. It is an excellent place to begin our consideration of this because, of course, the idea of Americanism is tied to the political situation in America, um, both in itself and then also on its impact on the church as it developed here in the United States. Um, obviously, uh, America was colonized mainly by Englishmen. And Englishmen who um, came after the Protestant uh, Rebellion, Reformation, however you wish to term it, especially in England. Um, So that's one side of the question. The other important thing to consider is as we look at this context in which Americanism will grow, um, we may say it's the philosophic underpinnings of the American um, Revolution which is important to understand clearly because it's um, rather distinct from some of the continental revolutions against the church. And that will play a part in at least the mind of some of the Americanists um, later on. Um, So unlike, say, the French Revolution, which really was based and developed off the thought of men like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, the American Revolution took its intellectual bearings from particularly uh, writers in the English tradition and foremost amongst them, John Locke. Um, But he, more than anyone else, really formed the mind and the perspective of the overarching elite in the America in the 1750s, 60s, and 70s, and was the one who gave that philosophical argument for what they did. Um, And that's going to play into some of the formation of the mind of uh, some of the men we're going to look at today and some of the thought. And he could basically be said um, to be effectively um, a naturalist, and perhaps if you want to consider what Father Ruder was discussing on his overarching description of what liberalism is, you might fall into, uh, let's say, the second category of naturalists, one who would still recognize that there is a principle above um, human beings and which gives order to the reality as we know it, but which does not necessarily play a large part in providence. Um, uh, in other words, guiding human affairs. And certainly, although he took Christianity very seriously, it would not be in in any orthodox sense. Um, And broadly, his political program, which is important for the Americans, could be summed up as an effort to, I would say, um, base politics as much as possible, merely on what unassisted human reason could discern about um, the nature of man and what that would suggest about a just political order. Um, and part of the reason that he did that was to try to diminish, certainly, the influence of religious men in politics. I think that's very clear. Um, and uh, his first target would have been um, 
maybe it's helpful to understand the context he's writing in. He grew up in the midst of those English Civil Wars that I mentioned before. So in the 1640s and 50s, he was going to college, and he was actually at college when King Charles the First was beheaded, just a few miles okay. outside of his college. Um, and um, the one who oversaw that beheading was, in fact, a Puritan, Oliver Cromwell. So that was the immediate, you might say, uh, thought of, okay, how do we diminish the effect of religious men that he kind of saw perhaps as dangerous um, to politics um, from day-to-day politics? Um, What we can say there is um, that plays out in a series of writings that he does. Um, that will become the, the, you might say, the intellectual food of a lot of um, American uh, colonists, such as the first and second treatises, which really lay out the foundations of politics apart from revelation, um, as well as a letter concerning toleration, which has a huge impact in shaping the understanding of how church and state should be related. Um, and we'll, I think, come back to that a little bit more in detail. And then also his reasonableness of Christianity, which is an effort to uh, really downplay more than anything else the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he really wants to diminish that idea precisely so as to um, mitigate, again, that that claim of men to, to guide politics and revelation. Ultimately, we would say under the banner of Christ the King. He goes on to state that um, that political authority is limited to certain a set of goals that are established by the natural law. Now, unlike someone like Kant, unlike someone like a, a Rousseau, he's going to say that the natural order provides a guide for human life. Um, but at the same time, that political authority is going to be um, justly based on the consent of the governed. Um, he goes on to say, and this is in the letter concerning toleration, that a church um, is basically not supernatural. It's not a divine institution. There's no evidence in his argumentation that God intended to establish a certain hierarchy with certain men that have authority. Instead, any church, and he puts them all on an equal plane as far as this is concerned, is merely a voluntary association of men who gather together and agree about what they judge to be God and how best to please him. The government is it's the government has nothing to say about them. It's just more or less uh, you're free to do what you will will leave you alone and um, unless let's say you are going to somehow go against the natural law or the moral law in which in which case we punish you an example of that if if a religion would argue for uh, human sacrifice Locke would say the state has to suppress that there's we know that's not from god so his experiences in england with Cromwell, the beheading of Charles I, really kind of solidify this position in his mind that you you have to rip apart th- these two aspects of, of man's being, the, the religious end and then the political end. And he's saying you, you can't have those because he's seeing chaos, essentially, in England. Um, and he sees this as a solution. If you separate this out, then you won't have this kind of chaos happening in the political sphere. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And... 
or less dangerous chaos. I mean, he, I don't think, would ever come to the conclusion that you would um, eliminate um, human passions, which lead to that chaos, um, but certainly that. And his opinions were more um, certainly um, solidified also by his opposition to Catholicism, which was a very dangerous um, part, partly because... Um, in his argumentation, actually, it would divide a subject's loyalties. Where, and he, he says in letters concerning toleration that it's one of the opinions that a state cannot uh, approve of is one where a, um, a religious sect would in some way have a loyalty to some authority distinct from the, the sovereign authority in that nation. Um, okay, so he wants to really get, get out this this foreign interference, and and as you're saying this, Father, I'm I'm thinking back to history lessons of uh, the '60s when John F. Kennedy was running for president, and people were very concerned that he was going to be taking his orders from the Pope, um, and he he wasn't. We know JFK was not the greatest Catholic in the world, um, but some of those concerns that people had uh, in the United States at the time are seem like a direct descendant of this thinking. Precisely. Well, they definitely are. That very much formed both, uh, let's say, religious aspect of it. You know, the, the Puritans were perhaps the most hostile to that idea um, that, that both for their case doctrinally, but also just politically, they, they thought that was a dangerous thing. Um, and the Puritans and their descendants were some of the most driving forces uh, at the elite level in, in our government for, for many uh, for many years. And yes, you know, Kennedy very much was uh, dealing with that, and very clearly went there to the point of saying, "Look, uh, he's the one who, in a sense, founded the idea of I'll be Catholic in my private life, but in public life, I'll do my own thing." Right. Absolutely. And he did. Well, this isn't a political podcast, but, uh, uh, so, so let's pivot a bit then father to the situation of the Catholic church in the United States at the time, or at, at the time of the the founding, um, there was, as we've seen, uh, definitely a lot of anti-Catholic bias. Um, and there was Catholics were, were a huge minority in in the United States at, at the time. Exactly. Um, in fact, a remarkably small minority. Um, by most estimates, at the time, let's say at the beginning of the Revolutionary War in 1776, um, there may have been roughly 30,000 or so Catholics living in the United States, and most of them were concentrated in Maryland and perhaps areas of Virginia. Again, Maryland having originally been founded with the idea that it would be a sanctuary for Catholics. Although that didn't last. And in fact, by the time of the American Revolution, Maryland had gone so far in the opposite direction that uh, up until that time, Catholics could not even be citizens. They couldn't vote and couldn't hold certain public offices and stuff like that. They were um, persecuted in that sense. And again, so 30,000 out of the population um, overall in the colonies, about two and a half to three million. So that represents about 1% of the population. Very interesting. So there was this, uh, it was a very small, very slow growth of the church in the United States. Um, but then there were lots of immigrants in the, what, was it in the mid-1800s? Correct. Yeah, so the church grew fairly slowly, relatively slowly, I should say. Um, like, so you had the first diocese established in 1789, 
you didn't have any other diocese you know, in the vast territory that was the United States until sure. 1808. Um, okay. What you referenced there is in about the beginning of the 1840s and continuing through that decade and in the 1850s, you had a very large influx of Catholics, both from Ireland and from the Catholic principalities of Germany, mm-hmm. which tended, in fact, to, to balloon the population of, of the Catholics in the United States, so much so that by uh, as early as 1850, uh, Catholics were the single largest religion in the United States. Um, they were still well, an overall minority, but you know, if you compare them to, let's say, Puritans or whatever, they, they outnumbered them. Uh, led to a bit of a backlash. Um, mm-hmm. So you had a, the growth in that time period, that decade, of uh, a number of nativist parties, um, the uh, most famous of which is the Know Nothings, um, which were um, very in- intent on uh, trying to staunch the immigration of Catholics and even so far in certain instances to want to deprive them of civil rights. So, so that, that anti-Catholic bias was, was there and, and still existed. And, and it's interesting because um, I was reading something recently about, uh, about the United States Constitution and it said there's no religious test to vote or to do anything or to hold public office in the federal constitution, but the states could hold uh, various uh, laws prohibiting someone to hold public office in the state. Um, and that, that was existing for, for quite a while. It was, it was only fairly recently uh, in the grand scheme of things that that was, that was no longer the case. Right. Yeah, it gradually disappeared, but for sure, you know, it was a number of states relatively soon after the um, after the Revolutionary War, after the, that period following it, tended to ease those things out. Um, but you, you still had, uh, even for the first few decades, not only what you just mentioned, but also very explicit political support for Protestant religions, like the, the statement Constitution of Massachusetts up until the 1820s, basically promoted um, congregationalism or Puritanism through schools, through providing funds for public ministers in every town. Um, they're pretty explicit about that. And indeed, uh, part of the reason that the Catholic school system developed in the United States was because the public schools at that time made a point of teaching Protestant Protestant uh, theology or, you know, sure. you know, teaching the Bible from a Protestant understanding. It was to prevent Catholic children from having to be exposed to that you know, in those public schools that they really invested in the parochial system. Now, as time went on, you had a second large wave of growth of Catholics um, in the 1880s and 90s, this time more from Italians. That's when you really have the Italians coming in large numbers, as well as okay. Poles and Eastern uh, Europeans. And again, the, the growth at this point is becoming rather dramatic, so much so that, so like I mentioned a few minutes ago, the first bishop was established in 1789. That was John Carroll. A century later, uh, 1889, right when you have that um, beginning of the, the beginning of the influx of these other Catholics, at that point, um, and I'll, again, I'll just kind of give some perspective here. The, the population of the United States as a whole had grown to roughly 65 million people. Mm-hmm which is about 20 times the population in beginning the Civil War. So it's, it's really prolific growth, in fact. Um, now, the Catholics, um, 
had, again, as we saw, had about maybe about 30,000 people uh, in the United States. By 1889, that had grown to 10 million people. Wow. Um, which means that while the overall population in the United States had grown 20 times, the population of Catholics had grown over 300 times. Um, wow. And there is one bishop, uh, one bishopric in 1789. Uh, the, the, the next bishop, uh, Episcopal Sees, were not founded, as I mentioned, until 1808, 19 years later. You had New York City, uh, Boston, Philadelphia, and Bardstown. By 1889, you had a 77 diocese. Um, and third, uh, yeah, actually, I forget how many archdioceses, but again, that's 77 new dioceses formed in the space of 100 years. You'd seen the same rate of growth, you know, over the next 100 years. You'd have like almost uh, 4,000 dioceses, you know, in the United States. Wow. It's, it's clearly not there. Right now, there's about 200 dioceses in the United States, but. You can see the dramatic growth and the tension that's going to be putting on the country um, because of the historical animosity, uh, intellectually, religiously, and then just the general animosity, the difficulties of um, assimilating new people. And that's going to raise a ton of questions, um, which is really kind of the backdrop of this the Americanist crisis, in a sense, that comes up. So... Where do we go next? We've, we've kind of seen the background, we've seen the backdrop and this explosion of growth. Um, but then in our study of Americanism, what's, what's the next stopping point, Father? What I think would be good, perhaps, then is to, to begin by considering a few of the, the more prominent of those who can be said to exhibit uh, elements of this Americanist, in the, the bad sense of the term, uh, way of thinking. Okay. Um, then we'll come through as, as we go through systematically what that means and see what they have to say about uh, certain of the, what we can call Americanist teachings as someone as Leo Thirteenth really articulates. Okay. Um, first of which I think is worthy of consideration is uh, John Carroll, we mentioned before. Uh, he... Uh, was the first bishop of the United States. He originally was a Jesuit, um, and he was a missionary here um, for many years, uh, although he studied in England, in the sense that he argued on behalf of uh, an election by the clergy that were in America of the who would become the bishop and then have that ratified by Rome. So uh, partly he did that so as to diminish any misgivings that uh, Americans would have. So there's an element of a prudential consideration there. But at the same time, there's, I think, also a leaning towards um, this openness, although he would certainly not go too far in that direction. He, he had to fight um, what was called trusteeism in the United States, which was specifically the idea that local congregations would elect their own priests and bishops just had to accept that. Huh. In fact, he ended up excommunicating a few priests who were elected by a parish in Philadelphia and who wouldn't relinquish the parish when he told them they had to go. And so, wow. so he didn't go too far in that direction, but at the same time, there's 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 a certain sympathy with it. Another prominent uh, bishop is going to be John England, who was an Irishman in the uh, 1830s. 
let's say, a strong proponent, as we'll see, of this idea of the separation of church and state, saying that that's a better arrangement for the church herself um, in America than what you find with the union of church and state in the old world. Two other bishops um, uh, who lived about the same time, now close to the 1880s and 90s, um, the first of whom is John Ireland, who was a bishop in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, for anyone who, of our listeners who's been to Minneapolis-St. Paul and sees that glorious basilica, he's the one who made it happen. You know, he's, uh, he was a very active man and um, very driven, for sure. And he, in a sense, might be said to be the most, amongst bishops at least, most articulate uh, in arguing on behalf of elements of Americanism. Um, I was reading several of his speeches that he gave, and um, he's a very fiery personality, certainly, and very articulate. Um, and while, on the one hand, he says certain things that are, I would say, uh, quite balanced, you can definitely uh, see uh, some uh, unbalanced admiration of the American system. And then last and most bishops is Cardinal Gibbons, James Cardinal Gibbons, who was uh, uh, the Bishop of Baltimore, which is the uh, primatial see of the United States, and who himself was very, very friendly. He was very influential and knew many presidents during his time in Baltimore and uh, was a strong proponent of Americanism. There's two priests now that I think would be good to know about. The first of whom is Father Isaac Hecker, uh, who's an interesting person. Uh, he's the son of uh, Prussian uh, immigrants, so East German. And he grew up effectively without true religious guidance, one kind or another. When he was a child, as, or a teenager, I guess I should really say, as he would do work and try to support the family, uh, he would make a point of reading uh, Kant's critique of pure reason. It's not mm. a typical thing that I find uh, my, at least the teenagers in my school doing. <laughs> and so he's surrounded by uh, um, not only the, the growing influx of Irish Catholics at that time, but also, you know, that's, that's the time where you have a ferment intellectually as well with uh, the schools such as transcendentalists and stuff like that, those who are, um, those men like Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, Louisa May Alcott and her family, who um, emphasize these experiences and coming into kind of a personal contact with reality. He hung around with them before, right before he converted, he, he spent some time at a utopian farm, apparently, in Brooks, mm. Massachusetts. Very interesting. Um, and, but he, he ended up converting, um, studied for a very short time, actually, uh, in England, and uh, was ordained a mere four or five years after his conversion. He was with Redemptress for a short time before being expelled from the order. <laughs> and that happened while he was at Rome. He went to Rome to talk to the superiors of the order, and um, it did not go well, and he was expelled. <laughs> he managed to arrange a uh, an interview with Pope Pius IX at the time and received permission from him to found a new religious order, which came to be known as the Paulists. Okay. The ideas behind it, in part, was to try to update the methods of apologetics and evangelization 
so as to be more suited to trying to appeal to the Catholic, or I'm sorry, to the Protestants in America, effectively. And he, in particular, was right at the heart of the Americanist uh, controversy in, in the encyclical test in Benevolencia by Leo the Thirteenth. He's mentioned by name, partly because of the controversy that erupted, actually, especially in France. Um, after his death, um, in which uh, the Pope uh, judged that he was uh, obliged to deal with, effectively. Wow. Definitely a, a controversial figure. And, and I, I would say, Father, that's probably not something that you would want to aspire to, to be named uh, by name in an encyclical. Probably not a, a good look. Yeah, generally that's not the ambition of <laughs> priests. Uh, um <laughs> So and we'll come back to that a little bit with him. The last priest okay. I think is worthy of mention as Americanist actually came a little bit after the kind of the tumultuous um, decade of 1890s and 1900s where um, that came to a head with the encyclical of Testament of Valencia, but who at the same time was very much and of the mind that the American uh, model of um, separation of church and state that political condition was the ideal and was the best suited for the church, especially in modern times. And that's Father John Courtney Murray, who was a Jesuit, uh, ordained in Rome in 1937, and who taught for a number of years at uh, Jesuit House of Formation in Woodstock, New York. And in fact, some of his writings were at the heart of a controversy in the mid-1950s between about the duties of a Catholic state. And it went so far that he was uh, he was forbidden from teaching and writing about the issue in the 1950s. Um, and like a lot of men who suffered that fate in the 1950s, somehow or another, he was invited to the Second Vatican Council as a paratus, uh, in this case, of Cardinal Spellman of New York City, um, beginning of the second um, session of the council. And in that position, he would end up playing a very um, large role in the development of the language of the the Constitution Dignitatis Humanae on religious liberty, um, which we'll end up uh, looking at later on, I think. Wow. So these are the players. This is the background. Uh, and then we get into looking at Americanism proper. So... Um, Pope Leo the Thirteenth. He's the one who writes the the encyclical that you've that you've referenced a, a, a few times. So, what are some of the features of Americanism um, that that really distinguish it from other heresies or or improper ways of thinking? Okay, that's that's a good question. And to answer that, I think it'd be helpful to take from that portion the encyclical the citation where Leo the Thirteenth goes to the heart of the matter. Okay. So what Leo XIII says um, about Americanism, that um, that false set of ideas, is that it's based on one main principle, which is that in order to attract, um, let's say more easily, those who differ from her, from the church, the church should shape her teachings more in accord with the spirit of the age and relax some of her ancient severity and make some new, I apologize, make some concessions to new opinions. In other words, he's, he's noting that there is a, a desire to draw people to the church, 
but in such a way as to, in one manner or another, modify the teachings of the church, which are seen as obstacles to their conversion, so as to make it more accessible to them. Um, and in this context, it might be helpful to, to hear Bishop John Ireland, and this is in a speech that he gave um, at the celebration that the church organized to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the hierarchy in the United States, therefore in, in November of 1889. While I have but anathemas for the age, seeing only its aberrations, irritating it by continuous denunciations of its mistakes, never acknowledging the good in it, never striving to win its love to Holy Church. Hmm. There you see, I would say, what Pope Leo XIII is highlighting as that kind of underlying approach and attitude um, that is going to be the cause of several more concrete um, problems uh, in Americanism. And if you'll note, and as we get closer towards the, the Christ and the Church in our day, and we look at the Second Vatican Council, that kind of language is very similar to um, what we'll see John the 23rd using as he begins the council, where he says, we're not interested in having prophets of doom, you know, who have nothing but, or who no, do nothing but fulminate in condemnations of, of the day. You know, mm. It's the same kind of spirit, in fact. It's very interesting because the what you're saying that Pope Leo the Thirteenth is condemning, which is you know don't water down to well to water down his statement, don't water down the principles of of the church, don't water down Catholicism in order to try to reach more people. Uh, instead, stick with it and 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 keep going forward with the truth. Uh, and then what sixty seventy years later we see the complete opposite in Vatican II of well no we need to reach more people we need to uh, water it down we need to reach people where they are in the wrong way. Oh, exactly. In a sense, it's um, what Leo XIII is discussing here could be put, you know, seen as what later became called a giornamento, mm-hmm. updating the church, uh, letting fresh air into the church, um, all under the understanding that it's only by doing that that we'll be able to have any appeal to the world. Um, and Leo the Thirteenth goes on and says that many think that these concessions should be made not only in regard to ways of living, but even regard to doctrines which belong to the deposit of the faith. Um, which tends to us suggest that um, for these people, it's precisely the understanding that doctrine does not reflect an unchanging truth, you know, right. ultimately, ultimately. Um, and as a result, can be shifted, can be reworded so as to better reflect um, what's going on there. It's Father Ruder and his uh, discussion about liberalism noted that for some of them, such as uh, Maurice Blondel, the idea of truth shifts from you know, conforming one's mind to this eternal reality and becomes now a, a, um, a quality with life or its reflection of life. What people Right. And we can see echoes of that in statements that are being made by our current pontiff as well. Oh, of course. I mean, this it runs through a lot of this. You know, for example, yeah. just two days ago now, you know, when we're recording this, um, 
know, it came out or the, let's say the, the documentary came out and says that we need to accommodate the law of states to include civil unions for, for homosexuals because they uh, the attitude of the church in that regard, because they're living the situation. And the same thing can be true of Amoris Laetitia that Father McFarland mentioned in the, uh, when he was talking about the crisis as such. Right. We, we have to adapt our teaching so that we can appeal to men instead of appealing to men to uh, work a little bit harder and, and do what is correct. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. So as I mentioned, that overall principle um, would, especially in the American context, translate into certain religious aberrations that the Pope um, noted uh, represented departures from the true faith, ultimately. You know, from the point of view of Leo Thirteenth, Americanism fundamentally is this desire to change the church, change what she's taught, how she's presented herself on certain fundamental levels in order to better accommodate themselves or the church to the spirit of the age. Um, and again, as we've seen, that attitude, that spirit um, is going to certainly find an echo in modernism. It's going to influence um, the minds of men who want, especially as we draw near to the Second Vatican Council, to update the church. And you know, from that point of view, although I think as we'll see, there's some very concrete manifestations of that principle in the American context, and which will have echoes as well in the world and in the church. But it's something that is not limited to America. It's, it's not um, something that solely arose in this nation. Um, it's something that uh, is going to animate people, a number of French priests, um, for example, there's something like the Sion in France, um, which also has the same approach. And as a result, as we started out looking at this, it's there's certainly elements of it which flow from that philosophical looking. And I think it will be important to come back to that, especially when we look at the question of the relations of church and state um, that are proper to the United States context. But it's not such that it's going to, it doesn't mean that we have to uh, throw everything about our heritage out of the window. We just have to be about it and we have to be intelligent about understanding what is behind our nation and how is that related to the church. Sure, absolutely. Well, Father, I think this is a good place for us to pause for for this episode. Um, Thank you for giving us this background and this information. And next time we'll be talking more about, um, you know, the, the adaptations, kind of the democratization of the church, like you mentioned. Uh, And then we'll also be talking about how kind of this American experiment is kind of the leads into what the future of the Catholic Church would be. But for now, we will leave it here. And uh, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to and watching Episode 7 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next Thursday is Thanksgiving, so we'll be welcoming Father Loop back to finish our discussion on Americanism next Wednesday. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis, 
and we'll do our best to have it answered during the appropriate episode. And we could definitely use your support. First, by sharing this episode. Please share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is or how it works, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this crisis in the church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.